2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 127 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Uh, I'm not too bad. I'm, yeah, what's yeah, been happening? Look,
1: I'm, sorry? What's been happening? Just, um, I think last time we just, we talked, we talked about my very overwhelming to-do list. Yes. Yes, yeah, so I'm just basically uh, working my way through that. And uh, <laughs> I, of course, have school school holidays. You love um, those
2: school holidays, don't you? I love them so
1: much. You just much. love them. <laughs> I just love them. No, I do love them. I enjoy the fact that I don't have to get up every morning and make lunches and get kids out the door screaming and shouting and wrestling about shoes. Yes. That's good. That's yes. a real plus. Mm. Um, there's a very relaxed, you know, kind of uh, routine to the day around here in school holidays. But having said that, it does make getting anything else done a little bit difficult. So You,
2: you yeah. make your kids' lunches every morning. I do. That's great well well how well
1: some mornings they do make them themselves and I, I am angling and moving towards that but I also find at the moment with two boys one yes. twelve and one nine that I tend to spend most of the morning breaking up fights. Oh, yes. So hiding in the kitchen and making lunches is a really good excuse not to have to get involved in, you know, he stole my dressing gown and I can't (laughs) find my shoes and all of that kind of stuff. So there's a bit of that going. Wow. But I am moving towards self-sufficiency. Make your own. That
2: is, it's such a foreign concept to me because for the entire time when I was at school, at the start of every month, my dad would like buy multiple loaves of, um, you know, tip-top, <laughs> bread, <laughs> and just have an assembly line, and have bread, 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 butter, 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 butter like he would butter it all, and then. <laughs> ham, 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 ham. The occasionally, I might get pressed chicken and then put bread on top, cut it into squares, cut the crusts off, put them all into individual plastic bags, put them all back into the tip top.
1: And then freeze <laughs> them. And
2: freeze them. Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, here's the thing. I absolutely despise frozen bread
2: and yes, I'm pretty sure
1: do. I cannot stand it. Defrosted bread just makes me feel kind of queasy. So yes. I'm pretty sure that that's because I, we, that sort of, we always, mum and dad, we, they didn't actually make the sandwiches in advance, but the bread was always frozen. You pulled it out of the freezer. And mm-hmm. then my sister, cause my sister was actually, my sister, Maxabella, hi, Maxabella, was actually on she used to do the lunches in the morning because she was the most organized and she got up the earliest. Mm. So she used to make all our lunches, but she would make them on frozen bread. And so we would have the frozen bread and she would butter it and put, you know, peanut butter. I'm pretty sure we had peanut butter or Vegemite pretty much every day. Mm -hmm. Um, and then that would go into your lunch bowls. And I just, I cannot stand it. So yes. I if there's one thing I can do for my children, it's fresh bread, and that's so that's what I do. But well I done. do wish they made their own, and that's yeah, as I said, that's what I'm moving towards is they their own lunch. Well, they are. They're, They're getting there. They're more than old enough to make their own lunches. Mm. Um, I'm just worried they'll stab each other with butter knives. So <laughs> I, have to, I have to referee.
2: <laughs> Could be possible. Yes. All right, anyway, let's anyway, move Let's not on. talk about lunches. What yes. You, <laughs> this is actually a Podcast, everyone, in case you tuned in and was wondering why we're talking about frozen lunches.
1: But I would love to know your thoughts on frozen bread. So, do you agree with me? Please tweet me and let me know.
2: Well, we want to give a shout out to Kirsty Lee 87. Kirsty Lee, 87 who Mm. has left us a review on iTunes. And Kirsty Lee has kindly said, I'm so glad to have come across this podcast series. For a long time, I've been working on my debut novel and feel like it's never going to get anywhere. Consequently, after I finished the first draft, I put it away for far too long and lost all motivation to pick it back up. That was until I started listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. I love the casual approach in structure. Just two writer friends chatting about what they've been up to, including Frozen (laughs) Fred. The author interview use the author interviews have sent me onto a new range of authors that I now follow on social media, and I'm often found looking up the articles and links referenced in each episode. The podcasts are always full of practical advice, but most of all, hearing all the success stories and having weekly access to the topic of writing always motivates me to sit down and write. Wow! Well, that's, that's fantastic. Thrilled to hear it, Kirsty Lee, eighty-seven, and I Absolutely. hope you keep on going because and I hope it's, you are yeah.
1: twirling through that second draft of your first novel. Yes, that's, that's going right. Wrong. Yeah
2: can't wait to hear about the release of that novel. Fantastic. All right. So, thank you. And if you do have 30 seconds yourself to leave us a review or rating on iTunes, we'd really appreciate it because it certainly helps us in the rankings. Now, let us move on to the world of writing and publishing this week, shall we? Yes, let's. Please. Well, now you have a YouTube video for us, which of course we'll put the link in the show notes, which you yes. can find at so you want to be a writer. com. Yes. So yes.
1: What's now about? this is a well, I, I I urge everyone to have a look at the show notes for this one, um, and or to, to look it up in some way because um, this is a Vlog Brothers YouTube video, and the Vlog Brothers, of course, um, is John Green, uh, you know, international best-selling, amazing author, uh, talking about writing in books and all of those sorts of things and this particular I don't watch it all the time but every once in a while it kind of crosses my radar for various reasons and This particular video, um, which is I think the current video, uh, I'm not exactly sure, but um, he is having a conversation about failure and I think it's a really, really, really good one for all writers to watch. He's talking in this particular video about the fact that it's been five years since The Fault in Our Stars came out and, of course, The Mm -hmm. Fault in Our Stars is – one of those books that just took over the world, mm. um, took over conversations, became a movie, became you know a cultural touchstone, yep. um, particularly for a lot of YA readers who just, of course, took it to heart and ran with it in the biggest possible way. And he talks about the pressure that has that actually put on his writing and the fact that he actually hasn't been writing very much and he's um, wrestled with it a lot mm. and he talks about the fact that he's kind of come to terms with it. He's come to, to, to a sort of a more peaceful place. He's writing something at the moment but he's actually writing it, you know, he's sort of even said to his wife, I'm writing this for fun. This is just for me. I'm just going to see what happens. Mm. And I think that it's an interesting thing because you would um, – The self doubt, I think, that he talks about in this particular video is really important for all writers to understand in the sense that all writers go through it. Mm. And you would imagine that, you know, having this amazing success would somehow make you immune from that self doubt. But in actual fact, the way he talks and and what he talks about is that it makes it worse. So if you think that you're writing, and your novel is going to be amazing, and that is going to suddenly validate you and make you feel like a real writer, and 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 sort of give you the support and uh, everything that you need. Um, it's worth watching this video because the fact of the matter is that it's never going to happen that way. Like you are, even if you have something that is amazing, you're going to find yourself thinking. Well, is it really amazing, or was it just a fluke? And can I yeah. ever do it again? And how am I going to do that again? And and so every word that you then write afterwards becomes this massive thing. And of course, I think the Fault in Our Stars was his fourth or fifth novel. So this is not the you know world famous second novel syndrome. He, he's a, he's experienced. You know, he's had a lot of books that have done very well, but nothing quite like this one. And um, I, I so yeah, as I said, I urge uh, I urge everyone to have a look at that particular video, just to kind of get a sense of the fact that everyone goes through it. And mm. in the same token, um, this week, uh, before I saw this video, I put up a post on my own website, uh, which is allisontatecom And it's, Uh, A bunch of uh, Australian authors, nine of them plus me, answering a question that I get asked a lot, and I'm sure that you also get asked a lot, Valerie. Mm. And the question is this How do you know when your writing is good enough? Mm. How do you know when it's good enough to submit to agents or to submit to publishers or to self publish or whatever it is that you're going to do with it? How do you know? So I asked um, nine other authors including you know award-winning international bestsellers like rachel johns including natasha lester who teaches of course at the australian writers center Mm -hmm. um, including anna spargo ryan who is a literary author whose debut novel came out recently to great acclaim and critical you know interest Mm -hmm. i asked to belinda Morell, who writes you know best-selling internationally published um, author of children's fiction i asked them you know what
2: how do they know how it's, do they know when what they've done is good so what are some of the highlights what or do, were there any surprises well i think the thing i think the thing that
1: the one thing that comes through from all of them in different ways is that everyone struggles with it the yes. short answer is that you don't. Alan Baxter, who of course we interviewed recently on the podcast, you know, the short answer is you don't. And you at some point have to take a shot and hope for good editors. At some point you have to let your writing go. I think that that's probably the key message to the whole thing is that you have to do the best you can with it. And then once you've done what you think is the best you can with it, then then you submit it and you wait to see what happens next. And I think that that's, Because I know a lot of uh, new authors or aspiring Mm -hmm. authors find it very, very difficult to let it go. They're just like rewriting and editing for years and years and years and years. Well, at some point you have to put it out there to the market and see what happens. Yeah, absolutely. How do you know when yours is good enough?
2: Um, I think it depends on what kind of writing, for mm-hmm. a start. I think that if I'm writing non-fiction, so for example, if I'm writing, um, you know, a feature article for a magazine, or if I'm writing um, some co- copywriting for a corporate client, I just know. Mm-hmm. I think, and I and I think I just know because I have been doing it for so long, yeah. and because I've been in the position of being an editor of those things. Mm-hmm. I've that's been a, that's a, the best experience to have because you can critically look at all different types of, you know, styles of non-fiction writing and because you're an editor, it's your job to know what's wrong with it or what's good about it and so I think that you... I experience, the years of experience have gotten me to a place where I can just look at something and I know immediately that's what's wrong, that needs to change, that's, yeah. that's how it can be improved. So fortunately, with non-fiction writing, I just know. Mm. With f- fiction writing, which I dabble in from time to time purely for you know creativity reasons and because I'm exploring something... Uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I suffer from all the same insecurities as everyone else. It's a completely different headspace to be in. The confidence and assuredness that I have with nonfiction writing does not translate <laughs> at all to to fictional writing. <laughs> mm.
1: Well, they're quite they're quite different. I how mean about you go? well, as I, say, blood pa- blood post, <laughs> as I say in my blog post blog post, as I say in my blog post, um, it's not an easy question to answer, I think, for anybody. Yeah. And like because I've been a writer in one form or another for my whole working yeah. life, yeah. I think that it's a question that over time has been answered for me by other people. So, you know, by an editor throwing a story back at me covered in red pen in the case of feature writing and stuff like that. And then also because I've also been writing fiction for a long time now and I've been part of writers' groups and I've got Mm -hmm. friends who are writers and I read a lot of things and, um, you know, uh, if I give it to a first reader perhaps in a writing group years ago and they make suggestions and you start to pick up on the things that you're doing over and over again. And then at yeah. some point, and again, this just comes down to practice. And this is why I say to people that, you know, you, you have to write a lot to really find your way. Like you've got to write a lot of things, a lot of words before yes. you work out how you write and what works for you. And then at that point, you begin to find your own way and you can use past experience to feel your way through your current project. So, um, I'm currently sort of edit structural editing, um, my one, my, my sixth book for children. So it's quite Mm -hmm. a different experience to what it was when I wrote my first book, my first novel for children. Um, because I have a much stronger sense of what is going to work and what is not going to work. And, um, that that helps me because, you know, I've done this. I've been here. And every novel is different and writing every single thing that you do is different. But you do get that sense of I've been here. I know how to do this. And, mm. you know, you can find a way. And you, you really feel when you're going off track. You know when you're going off track and you know you've got to pull yourself back in and sort of, you know, move in a different direction.
2: I think it's also important to point out that the question is – uh, is your writing good enough for the purpose in which mm. you're intending? Yes. That's so, right. because, you know, I read a lot of fiction, even mm. if I don't write it, you know, as much as I write nonfiction. And. I think that sometimes you, and I read a lot of manuscripts as well, and sometimes you go, that is perfect for that market, but oh my God, so not perfect for the market that she thinks she's writing for. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. Or that is perfect for that genre, but it really wouldn't work in that genre. So you also need to think about if you are giving it to a reader, if you are giving it to an editor, you need to be clear on your intention for the, the or your goal for the book as well. That's right. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah,
1: you need to know where you're writing and who you're writing for. It's it's really important. And that comes down to research and it comes
2: down to practice. Definitely. All right. So, speaking of writing, I came across this post from Carly Waters, who is a literary agent, and she wrote a post called Four Ways to Write Better Dialogue. Now, they're pretty straightforward and they cover things like um, write in the character's voice, not yours, which is kind of obvious, but sometimes mm. people slip into their own voice um avoid perfect phrasing and sentences because Mm -hmm. none of us speak perfectly in real life at all Mm -hmm. in fact we talk in sentence fragments often uh and use dialogue to advance your plot now this is useful but I have a caveat here because when I do read a lot of new uh writers and particularly also if I'm reading something like fan fiction or something like that Mm. uh the dial, it's so dialogue heavy, it's ridiculous. Like, I, all you see is pages and pages of dialogue, mm. often without any dialogue tags, you know, as in uh. John said or Mary said or whatever. So, you, so I'm so confused as, who's talking. And they try and unfold the story to, they try and unfold the story with the dialogue. So even though, yes, you should be using dialogue to advance your plot, it shouldn't be the only thing, I think, to no. advance your plot. Do you come across that where you just see pages and pages of dialogue?
1: I do. It's called talking head syndrome <laughs> and it's to be avoided at all at all costs. Um, you really need to allow your reader to you have to ground them every once in a while. So you have passages of dialogue, absolutely. Um, But you need to actually bring them. And the other thing you need to do is that, you know, people don't just stand there staring at each other having conversations. Like they move Mm. around and they Mm. do things and they pick up coffee cups and they do whatever it is that they do. And you can show show, notice me using that word there, show, um, you can show character and you can show action and you can show plot advancement in those bits as well, in those movements, in how somebody does something or, um, you know, if they're sitting there staring at you, then that's quite different to if they're nervously pacing around a room and all of those sorts of different things. So so dialogue is not just about what's being said, it's about how it's being said, it's about who's saying it and it's about what they're doing while they say it as well. I think that those sorts of things are important. I have two things that I do to help, you know, write better dialogue. I oh, do tell. I do. Um, I read it aloud. And I know that that that's an old tip and I know that people go, yeah, yeah, whatever. But really, it makes makes a massive difference because you can hear it. If you read it aloud, you can hear how clunky it is. You can hear if all your characters sound the same, which is a very difficult thing, Um, particularly if you've got three characters. Say you're writing a story about three women and they all went to the same school and they all live in the same town and they've been friends for 100 years. Mm. What are you going to do? to make them different in their dialogue. How are you going to do that? What vocal tics are you going to give them so that people know who is talking at what time? Because you really Mm -hmm. need to do that. Otherwise it's really boring. It's very, very boring. And the other thing that I do to improve my dialogue, and this is where I think that, um, I wrote a story once, uh, which was called six things that freelance writing has taught me Mm -hmm. about writing fiction or something. It was, was better than that. The headline was much better than that. <laughs> okay, <laughs> It sure. was really, was like clickbaity, much better.
2: Um, <laughs>
1: but the key to the whole thing was, you know, the things that I'd learned while freelancing that I use when I write fiction. And interviewing people over the years has given me a real ear for dialogue because yes. when you are listening to lots of different people talk about lots of different subjects in lots mm. of different ways, people from all sort of walks of life, you realise that people do talk differently. Like even if you're interviewing them and they've got their best radio Voice on, as I like to think of it. Um, you still—they're still going to give you their phrasing, and they're still going to give you their view of the world. And, and it's, it's a really interesting thing. So it taught me to listen to how mm. people talk, not just to what they're saying, but to how they say it. And that's something that I think everyone, all authors, should practice. Which is why I eavesdrop on trains always. Yes, absolutely.
2: Mm-hmm. So that's a really good point because if you—if you know, listeners don't have the luxury that you know, you have had where you've interviewed so many different people from so many walks of life, do that, do things like eavesdrop on trains, mm. do things like be really observant when you're catching the bus. You know, I know Helen Garner once said that she just carries her notebook everywhere and whether she's sitting in doctor's waiting room or whatever, she will take notes on things she observes or the way people speak or that sort of thing. And, you know, like when you go to the gym, put, don't put your headphones in, listen to the way people talk. Oh my God, people talk so differently in my gym and, you know, it's, yeah. it's great just to, to, to hear the different vernacular and the different cadences and all of that and to really um, remember that so that when you are writing your own dialogue, you do have those differences.
1: And it's really, really important, like even more important to do this. In fact, I actively um, encourage people to get on buses and uh, trains mm. at school drop-off and break-up time oh. if you are writing YA. Or that's if you are writing tip. for kids, catch the school bus, catch the catch the school trains because, great you know, tip. the way you think kids talk now mm. is probably not at all how they talk now and you really, really need to. Unless you've got kids around you all the time, then that's a great way to surround yourself with mm. just the way they speak and prepare yourself for the swearing because it's pretty intense out there.
2: Mm, mm, mm. Mm, mm. Yes, very, very, yeah. Um, great tip. Love it. Mm. Um, all right. Let's move on to the world of freelance writing. Mm. And we have a link from Rachel's List. We right? do.
1: We do have a link from Rachel's List. And this is just, I'm just really flagging this with our listeners who are freelance writers. Rachel's List is a great uh, community of freelancers. Um, it's a great source of work. It's a great source of information. Um, it's at rachelslist.com.au. And every year they do a survey where they ask freelancers to tell them how much they're earning. Mm -hmm. and where their money's coming from and what word rates they're getting and who are, you know, all of these different things. And um, then they put together a little infographic which shows you exactly how these things work. So they put up recently the uh, results of their Show Me the Money survey for Mm 2015-2016. And um, I think it's definitely worth having a look because it helps you to set your word rates It helps you to find uh, where actually where the work is at the moment Um, and it just gives you an idea of, you know, what's going on out there in freelance land.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's interesting that that – The question that they asked was how do you source, among many other questions, Mm -hmm. one of the questions was how do you source your work? And the answer, the vast majority of respondents, as in 42%, get work directly from editors or clients. Others, 25%, did a lot of pitching and cold calling. Ex-employers, personal website portfolios, friend and family connections, agency contacts or LinkedIn were also good avenues. Mm -hmm. Now, I would actually say that where the 25% that do the pitching and cold calling. First of all, a good on them. Mm. But I would say after they make have that first introduction, they become the forty-two percent. They do. That's and right. Get the work directly from the editors and clients. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, the other thing, the other cup. There's a couple of other interesting uh, little figures in there. Fifty-two percent of survey respondents have had to edge into new markets to make mm. a living, and I think that that's something that we talk about regularly. Is the fact that you need to keep an eye on exactly where freelance work is. And you need to skill yourself, you know, so that you can basically, um, so that you can follow that work where it is. And so, of course, yes. you know, new areas of work include, you know, writing content—the dreaded word—writing content for um, for websites and and various places uh, for social media. Um, copywriting is a very big sort of area excuse me, of work at the moment. So, um, have a look at where the work is coming from and then think about what you might need to do to get your skill level up to actually be able to chase that work because you need to be nimble if you're going to freelance and particularly if you're going to make a living from it. So, I thought that was quite interesting. And the other figure I found interesting was where they asked the question of, has your income changed? over the last year and if so is it better or worse Mm -hmm. and it was quite an interesting thing because 42% are making about the same Mm -hmm. 25% are making more than they ever have and 32% are making less than they ever have. Um, now, there's a lot of talk about, you know, freelance writing and particularly magazines and things like that. You know, there's the markets are drying up and all of that sort of stuff there. But, yeah. like, I look at that figure and, you know, my maths ain't that great, but I still see 67% of people making the same or more yes. than they ever have. And these figures are similar to the, to the last time they did the survey in 2014. So I think... I think attitude is a really important part of, Mm. you know, keeping your income levels up myself.
2: Absolutely. Mm. And one of the reasons I think people are making the same or more is very interestingly, and admittedly, this is the results of the people who answered the survey, not necessarily every freelancer that exists in Australia or the world, Mm. but the question they ask, who's hiring? We reveal the top five sources of work for Rachel's List members. Mm. And number one, is corporate clients, Mm. number two, is small businesses small to medium businesses mm. then number three Fairfax mm. number four digital agencies then number five Bauer media now in the and, and then there's the rest but and there's many other um, public many other organizations that are listed but those are the top five now in the past even to say five years ago it would have probably been number one Fairfax number two news number three ACP which is mm. now Bauer mm. uh, but now the top two are corporate clients and uh, small to medium sized businesses Businesses. And that goes to show that there are a, t- a couple of things. Number one, more opportunities to write content for those people. But number two, they are actually paying decent rates these days, If mm-hmm. especially if they're going to be number one and two, right?
1: Yeah. So, But, but interestingly, yeah. the top income stream that was asked, mm. uh, so they asked for the top income stream for freelancers. And for most, it's still journalism at 35%. Yeah, right. So, wow. That's in, I think that's an interesting um, – But
2: they, it depends on their definition of journalism, right? Some of them could be um, writing c- – could be classifying it as branded journalism. Some but then they was that they're, they're followed by
1: content producing at 12%, copywriting at 12%, editing at 13% and comms slash corporate slash business writing at 10 So, But just because you're writing
2: for a corporate doesn't mean that you're writing content or, or comms. Or, or no, I know, but I still don't
1: think. I, I still think that if I was asked what which part of my income, like I wouldn't classify uh, com stuff as journalism. I would still put that separately. So. Branded, sure. journal, branded journalism is still comms work, as far as I'm concerned. It's not journalism.
2: Oh, I think it depends because, you know, like Delicious Magazine, oh. it's funded by or was in the past funded by Woolworths and was, you say, so it just depends where the line is drawn.
1: Mm. Okay.
2: And that is definitely journalism. They should ask
1: that question then. Yeah, they that should. That needs to be a new question.
2: Yeah. Okay. All right. So let's move on then to a giveaway for this week. Woohoo. What, what have we got? got? It's so cool. Is Can you hear me clapping?
1: I <laughs> can. Okay, you are clapping somewhat so, disturbingly.
2: <laughs> I'm excited. This week you can win three limited edition literary prints from Perth-based artist Hannae Mayer. Now, Hannae is a writer and artist and these artworks are gorgeous and they depict the popular retro penguin covers of things like The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, The Great Gatsby and Jane Eyre. And But they're depicted in such a way that they, they use, quote, from the books themselves in the way that they have created the cover they're gorgeous and you can have a look of course um, uh, at writerscentre.com.au slash win uh, entries close midday monday the 3rd of october but don't worry if you are listening to this podcast in the future there will be some other giveaway at writerscentercomau slash win This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you're serious about completing your own novel manuscript, immerse yourself in our inspiring and motivational six-month program, Write Your Novel. Filled with weekly workshopping and practical lessons, you'll receive advice on structure, dialogue and balance, as well as tips on publishing. This online program fits around your weekly schedule and you'll find extensive Personal feedback from your tutor and classmates throughout the program. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash novelwriting. Alright, are you ready for the word of the week, Al? So ready. I'm not sure how to pronounce it though. <laughs>
1: Well, that's a little bit of an, uh, That's a little bit of a problem, then, isn't oh, okay. it? Okay, you better Google it before quickly before you speak. Given oh, that we've had this.
2: Oh well, I'll pronounce it. There, there can only be, really be two ways. So it's either termagent or termigent. Mm-hmm. So it's T E R M A G A N T. Now, a termagant or termagant isn't a very nice description for a woman. It refers to someone who is a nag and a shrew and it originally referred to males but moved oh. over for some reason to describe females by the late 17th century. But basically, you don't want to be called a termagant or termagant.
1: Mm-hmm. Or, or any of those things. Jis, I really wish you had looked oh, up yeah. how to pronounce that before we did this.
2: Oh, I'm looking it up now. Permagant. Sorry. Of course, I spelt it wrong as I Googled it.
1: <laughs> oh, it's going well. I have to say that I have seen this word um, written. So I, yes. I don't think I've ever used it myself. I knew what it was but I've, and I've seen it written, but I don't think I've ever heard it spoken either so you know it's not very common termagant
2: yeah i can't termagant Termagant. youtube tells me
1: yeah termagant Termitant, though. Um, yes, interesting.
2: All right. So, if you're using that in your word of the week in your blog posts this week, uh, do let us know. And um, we'd love to see how you've managed to work it into your blog posts. So, who is our writer in residence this week? Oh well, this week. Okay. So I have to. I have to confess, and I
1: do confess in the interview. Um, but this week, I the our, our interview was all because I just had. My own motives for wanting okay. to have this conversation. Okay. okay, so I just need to put that out there. So our interview this week is with Jay Christoff, um, or Mister Christoff, as he is known all over social media. And Jay Christoff is the uh, co-author of the Illuminate Files, mm. um, the first book of which came out. I think pretty sure it was last year. To a massive, it was just a smash hit all over yep. the world, very very quickly. Um, and he wrote the book with Amy Kaufman. Now, uh, Jay and I discussed his his rise to to sort of you know this particular point in his life we talked about his new book which is called The Nevernight Chronicles but seriously the only reason with my main reason for wanting to do this particular interview was I read Illuminate a few weeks ago Mm. and I just wanted to know how it was done because it's a fast it's a fantastic book. Um, the format is really, really interesting. It's a very graphic book, but it's not a graphic novel, but mm-hmm. there's an awful there's a lot of typography, there's a lot of um, it's just a really, really interesting concept. And I just I got to the end of it and I thought, because of course the, there's two of them writing it. I thought, A, mm-hmm. hey, how did they do this? And then I thought, how did they convince someone to publish this? Like, what did they do to get this over the line? Because I couldn't imagine how they would have actually um, submitted the manuscript. Like, it's as I say, it's quite an interesting format. So, um, yeah, so really I just set the entire interview up so that I could ask that question.
2: (laughs) Fantastic. (laughs) And here he is. Jay Kristoff
1: modestly describes himself as a literary giant. Given he is six foot seven and a literary type, it fits. The New York Times, an internationally best-selling author of sci-fi and fantasy, is riding a wave that has taken him from his first published novel, Storm Dancer, the first novel in the Lotus War trilogy in 2012, through the publication of the smash hit Illuminae, co-authored with Amy Kaufman to the recent release of the first book in his new fantasy series, The Nevernight Chronicles. So welcome Jay and thank you so much for fitting us into what me, must be a very busy schedule.
0: You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me.
1: So let's go all the way back to the beginning. Um, now, I read on your uh, website where I do all of my best research that um, you escaped Perth and you found yourself working in advertising. So how did your first novel actually come to be published and you know where did it fit in with your day job?
0: Advertising is a really strange industry. It's It's one where a young person can have a lot of fun and make a lot of money, but the hours are very demanding. And strangely enough, if you look around in advertising, you don't see very many people over 40. It's Mm -hmm. not the kind of industry that you can work in until you retire. So most people who are working in advertising, they hit mid-30s and they start looking for an escape hatch. And I had always written for fun. And even though the odds were long and and the, the probability of succeeding in writing career is remote I decided to try my hand at writing a novel so I was writing it on my lunch break I, I had an idea, a scene in my head, I wrote that scene down and that started to become a novel and it wasn't like I went into it with any real design it was it was something that i was trying in the off chance it might come to fruition but i didn't even know if i was going to finish that first book to tell you the truth i didn't tell anyone i was writing i didn't even tell my wife i was writing until it was three quarters done but i really enjoyed the process um and it you know in in the process of writing that first novel which was a terrible book by the way most people's first books are terrible (laughs) And yes. it, you know, it, it, will, it will never see the light of day but I got used to the ritual of sitting down and writing every day I really liked having a, a place I could go to a headspace that I could escape into so uh, I decided with my next book to try and do it properly to you know, research how one gets a literary agent and understand the flow of the market and how trends were working and what was likely to get up and what was selling, what wasn't um, approached with a little more of a Professional attitude to it, I guess, and that was the novel that eventually became Storm dancer
1: So was your first novel also? like they, let's let's talk about the one in the drawer that we will never see. was it also <laughs> was this also fantasy? like is that what you have you always written in this sci-fi fantasy kind of area, or did you, when you decided to be professional about this, think that's an area that I could actually you maybe sell
0: into? Uh, I mean, fantasy is something that I've always loved, but no, that first novel was—it was a vampire novel. It was—it was a Ooh. contemporary kind of horror novel about vampires, which I decided to write right in the middle of Twilight hysteria, um, <laughs> which wasn't the best use of my time, given that everyone else during Twilight hysteria was writing a vampire novel. But I was—I—I kind of grew up with, you know, Salem's Lot and Fright Night and. The Lost Boys, you know, vampires to me were, were scary. They were villains. And I thought Twilight was doing it wrong, damn it. So I was going to write the book that set everything straight uh, in my arrogance. Um, but yeah, I mean, fantasy is, I've always read fantasy ever since I was a kid. The Hobbit was probably the first book that I ever remember falling in love with. You know, that was the book that opened my eyes to the idea that there were books out there for kids like me. Um, and, you know, since then I've become an avid fantasy reader. So when I sat down to, to do it properly, quote unquote, uh, yeah, fantasy seemed like the logical thing to do. Horror is a really hard sell. Mm. Uh, it's been a hard sell since, you know, the mid 80s when Stephen King was king. Pardon the um, so, yeah, fa- fantasy is um, it's an easier sell in today's market.
1: Okay, so just just going back to something you said earlier. You said you'd always written for fun, and then you decided that you were going to get sort of a bit more serious about it. How? What did you do differently? Was it more or just? Was it just a process of I'm going to do this? You know, I'm going to actually finish a novel, or was it I'm going to sit down every day and do this? Like, what did you do that to sort of make that break between I do this for a bit of fun and I'm actually looking at this seriously?
0: Uh, Well, first, like I said, was doing a bit of research in the publishing industry Mm -hmm. and understanding, you know, what the probability is always long. Like I said, the the odds in this game are remote, but you can do things to shorten your odds. Uh, So writing, writing to, to current market trends, and that's difficult because, you know. By the time the book that you're writing now gets published, it's going to be two, three years' time. So mm. the trend that you're writing to might be dead by then. But you nice know, fantasy. in terms of, yeah, exactly. So, but in terms of understanding broader trends, you know, so yeah. so fantasy is a is a safe sell, for example, whereas writing a a horror novel, for example, isn't. Yeah. So un- understanding those broad kind of trends in the market, understanding. You know the mechanisms that are in place to, to have books published. You know, if you if you want to get published in America, you probably need a literary agent. So you need to understand how literary agents work, how one acquires the services of a literary agent. So getting a ground in the in the actual publishing industry and the mechanics thereof was kind of first step. Um, and then yeah, it was it was a matter of sitting down every single day, no matter what, you know, making the time, no matter how busy I was, no. No matter what else was going on in my life and, and also no matter how silly it seemed because you know when you're when you're writing a book particularly that first book you'll often find yourself sitting there you know alone in your house it's one o'clock in the morning and you've got to get up at six to go to work the next day yeah. and you're sitting writing a book about you know a girl who speaks telepathically to griffins or whatever and there will be moments where it strikes you as so absurd uh, that it's almost impossible to go on. You'll look in the mirror and ask yourself, am I crazy for doing this? Because it is kind of nuts. The odds are very long, but it's a matter of getting past that and going back to the keyboard and and writing. So yeah, I I would spend an hour a day um, at my job. I would book out a meeting room on my lunch break and take my keyboard in there, my laptop in there, and just write for an hour. When I got home from work, you know, I would do stuff like you know, spend time with my wife and stay married, that kind of thing. But <laughs> Staying married stuff, is good. It, yeah, it is, it is a good plan, life plan. Uh, but after she went to bed, you know, I, I would spend another hour kind of working on this impossible little thing that I was building. And yeah, it was just a matter of getting into that ritual and routine and, and deciding that I actually wanted to try this properly.
1: And did you, when you sold your first novel, um, Storm Dancer, did you then give up your day job entirely and, and concentrate on writing novels or did you just sit down and write the next one?
0: Yeah, no, I, I didn't quit my day job until we saw Luminaire. Um, right. No, yeah, it, I mean, it, it was it was wonderful feeling saying in that first book um, and the high of it kind of pushed me through and so I was able to work a day job and write. But mm. for a while there, I was essentially working two day jobs you know i would Mm. i would get home at night and write three four five hours a night um stay up till 2 a.m i did that for kind of five years got by on five six hours sleep every night Mm. um you know you would you would be very lucky to receive an advance large enough to quit your day job on your first novel Mm. um so unless you want to take your real financial gamble which we weren't prepared to do Uh, It was a matter of just finding those extra hours. So Mm. my friends kind of forgot what I looked like and then uh, I gave up playing video games and going out to movies and whatever and, and just kind of knuckled down and did this as hard as I possibly could.
1: And here you are, and you are now an experienced writer of series fiction. Um, so let's talk about let's talk about that, shall we? <laughs> Did you like that segue there? Um, so w- let's talk about planning a series because you do. You know, you, you've, your your new uh, novel is the first in a series, and of course, you uh, your Lotus War is a trilogy. You have a, a second uh, book in the Illuminae Files coming out next month, Gemina. Um So, do you have a process for planning a series? Like, are you are you sitting down and, and, you know, with a spreadsheet and plotting out the entire narrative arc before you begin?
0: No, I'm I'm very much a fly by the seat of your pants kind of writer. I, I, I've heard it called Join the Dotsing, which I really like as a turn of phrase. Like, I, I understand where the major narrative beats are going to lie in the story. I understand what the big twist is going to be usually before I sit down and start writing, but... I have no idea how those dots are going to be connected and the series planning is very similar like in the in the first novel I will lay down the seeds of the metaplot and I'll have a basic understanding of how that metaplot is going to resolve in book two and three. Usually when you're selling in a series you'll be required to submit a synopsis mm. of at least book two and three. To demonstrate that you have some understanding of where the series is going to go, that those requirements become a little more lax once you've published your first series because your publishers have an understanding that you can actually finish what you start, which is always nice. Yeah, always. Um, so yeah, I'll have a I'll have a broad understanding of what that meta plot is going to be, but no, I I tend to let the book surprise me uh, as I write it.
1: And do you it's, know how many books you're writing from the start?
0: Generally, yeah. Um, okay. I mean. You, you you'll you'll generally sell in with a plan. So we sold in the Nemanite Chronicle as a trilogy. We sold in Illuminae as a trilogy. Right. Um, yeah, but that that'll usually be negotiated before uh, your publisher agrees to buy it.
1: Okay. So given that you're writing sci-fi and and fantasy, both things which require you know some intensive world building, like you need to you've got to sort of establish those rules and regulations and people need to know where they are right from the start and all of those sorts of things. Do you know that stuff before you begin? Do you create the world in your head before you start or do you just constantly update the handbook as you go?
0: I'll have have reasonably detailed brushstrokes in place before I start writing, but one of the things I really enjoy about writing novels is having – the text or the characters or the world surprise you. Mm. Um, I I try not to go in with a really rigid idea of how things are going to work, either in terms of the story or in terms of the world building. Uh, It it can, a really good example for that was Nevernight. When I was finishing Nevernight last year, I had a concrete idea how the third act was going to work. I knew definitely everything that was going to happen before it began. Mm. But I found that in the middle of Act Two, I couldn't, I hit a wall where I couldn't make the story go where I wanted it to go. I knew the destination, but I couldn't push the story in that direction. And I was hating the book and hating myself and thought I had made a terrible mistake selling this thing in, because I just couldn't make it work. And I threw out that ending, my idea of where I thought the book should go. And as mm. soon as I did that, um, I finished the entire novel in two weeks. Like wow. It, it just, it was like flicking a switch. So as soon as I did away with the preconceived notion of how this thing should end and let the story have its head, it took me to a really cool place that I didn't anticipate. So yeah, I, I love those moments. I like it when the book surprises you or when the characters and the narrative become so real, they take on a life of their own in your head. So yeah, I I try to avoid being too rigid but that said in terms of world building it's very important to establish your rules before you begin um, because otherwise you end up being inconsistent and breaking your own uh, paradigms so yeah I'll, I'll, I'll have reasonably detailed ideas of the basic world structures before I start and okay. hopefully some ideas will fall out of that as I'm writing but I am constantly updating as I go that's that's just the way that I write I, I I am a fly by the seat of your pants kind of author.
1: Do you do a lot of editing then? Because I guess, you know, um, a lot of the authors I talk to and, and myself included will write the first draft like that and be just, like, belting through it to get to the end to find out what's going to happen. But then potentially the sec, the edit, uh, the second draft, is, is quite an intensive edit in the sense of layering details in putting in sort of um, some of those world-building aspects and things as you go. Like, are you... Are you doing that? Are you going back and layering all those details in or are you putting them in, in as much detail as you can as you go?
0: I, yeah, I kind of do it as I go, which is a lot of people tell you you shouldn't do that. You should just write the first draft and get it done. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I'll do now, now that I'm a full-time author in particular, I'll, I usually write about three 4,000 words a day and I'll start each new day's writing session by going back and editing what I had done the day before. So I'm constantly updating. So my first drafts tend to be pretty polished I'll have read them you know,
2: yeah.
0: 30, 40 times by the time that first draft is finished. So the, the second edit isn't as intensive. The first draft as a result usually takes a lot longer to okay. get it done.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, but yeah, it, I'm, I'm kind of constantly editing as I go, which again, some people will tell you is a bad idea. You know, the, the most important thing, particularly for new writers, is probably to get to the end of that first draft to get the damn thing finished.
1: Mm. But I guess it happens that, you know, you basically have to work the way you work, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, there are no golden rules when it comes to making art, whether it's writing or music or directing film, whatever. Um, you know, anyone who tells you there's an absolute rule is either a liar or selling you something, probably a book <laughs> on how to write a so yeah, that whatever works, whatever gets the words down on the page, whatever whatever gets you to finish your book is the right technique for you and that's a matter of trial and error. It's a matter of experimenting, seeing what works and what doesn't.
1: Okay, so you but said yeah, you're... There are no, so there's no rules, basically.
0: No golden rules. So <laughs> maybe follow the submission guidelines. That's a pretty good one. If you want to land yourself a literary agent, follow the submission guidelines, people.
1: Okay. So you said you write. um, Three to four thousand words a day. Um, is that every single day, or are you, is that only when you're working on on something in particular? Or how do you do you write every day?
0: I do, except for Sundays. I take Sundays off, and Saturday will normally be a lighter writing day. I usually devote the lion's share of Saturday to administration, uh, mm. that horrible, boring stuff. Mm. But at least I can do it in front of the TV or whatever. Mm. Um, but yeah, every day. I mean, it's my job now. It's 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 how I pay my mortgage. It's how I keep the lights turned on. So I have to approach it with the same kind of discipline that you would if you were working in an office nine to five. You know, you you get up and you don't feel like going to work one day. I mean, I guess you can throw, chuck a sickie, but most days you have to get up and do it anyway. It doesn't matter how you feel. Right. So yeah, I, I try and approach it with that same level of discipline. This is my job. This is what I do so yeah three three four thousand words a day is the minimum some days i'll have a better day um but yeah that i don't go to bed until i've got three thousand words in the can as a general rule so sometimes that means i'm up like last night until you know three o'clock in the morning but uh, i mean i'm I'm working on three series at the moment so (laughs) unless i get unless i get the words on the page it's not going to happen um and I'm kind of conscious of that and not letting anyone down. So,
1: And how much time do you need to set aside? Because, you know, you, as you say, you've got three series on the go. One of them is extremely successful. Are you having to put aside a lot of your time or more of your time for sort of promotional marketing kind of stuff as well?
0: You tend to do that in the lead up to launch. Um, yeah. you, have, you have to set aside blocks of time, yeah. I mean, there's the day-to-day promo stuff, which is basically social media. Uh, And that can chew up a lot of time if you let it. Mm. Like, Particularly places like Twitter, I I try and reply to everyone who replies to me which is getting harder and harder. Mm. Um, You accrue more followers so I'm finding that's getting more difficult nowadays. But, you know, so there's the basic day-to-day promo just being out there and being visible and having a website and having a social media presence which is, is work and it does take up time. But yeah, there's also promotional cycles so we're in the in the lead up to the launch of Gemini, now that oh. comes out at the end of October. So we're doing a bunch of interviews and a bunch of, of written Q and A's and blog posts and all that, which again, you know, it, it all chews up writing time. Mm.
1: So my ulterior motive, as I just confessed to you before we began this interview um, to, for organizing this interview was simply to talk about Illuminae because um, I read it recently. I bought it for my son and, um, and then I thought, well, you know, being a, a responsible parent, I should probably have a quick look at it. And I <laughs> opened oh, – well, it was one of those situations because I, I, I'm not generally a sci-fi reader, but I opened it and I thought I'll just have a quick look at the first chapter or so and – two days later, or not even that long, but I had to fit it in around other things, you know, I sort of emerged from the wormhole that it is. Um, It's fantastic. It's just, I mean, it's done in the form of a dossier, which is why I thought maybe I wouldn't like it that much. Um, But I just loved it. You know, the format is so interesting and the story is, you know, yeah. Look, I just think it's a massive, massively successful um, a thing that you've written there, and I just wanted to talk to you about how it was done because it is a co-authoring project. It's very graphic, like given the, the the dossier format of it, and there's a, a lot of sort of graphic elements to it. Um, did you submit it like that? Like how how did it come to be, and how did you convince someone to publish it in that format?
0: Uh, it, it came to be. Amy had a dream. Amy, know what buddies. Um, we were both kind of newbie authors living in Melbourne, and we would get together for brunch every month just to talk shop, um, because we didn't really know any other Australian authors at the time. So we'd get together, have a chat, talk about you know our edits or something our editor said that we didn't understand but were too embarrassed to ask about, so on and so forth. And one day she walked in and said she had a dream that we wrote a book together. And it was an email book she couldn't remember what the book was about but she remembered that it was written in email format mm. and you know we, we kind of got to talking and that didn't seem like such a bad idea and that would that was kind of the premise where Illumina started but we very quickly evolved from the email format and decided we would try a bunch of alternate format documents And once we stumbled across the idea of Aiden, Aiden, for those who haven't read the book, it's an artificial intelligence on one of the ships in the series. And it is a narrator, it's an unreliable narrator, but it's been damaged early on in the book. And the damage means that the way it perceives events dictates the way those events are transcribed on the page. So, for example, when there's a there's a dogfight in space that it's watching um, the typography moves across the page the same way those spaceships are moving when they're dogfighting each other. Oh. So once we once we arrived at that idea that, that Aiden could be an orator, that kind of opened the door for any crazy document style that we could think of. Oh. And it also led us very quickly to the conclusion that this book was just too insane and no <laughs> publisher was ever gonna buy it. It would just be too expensive and, and too problematic to produce uh, And so we just wrote it for fun. It was something that we were working on in our spare time. We were really excited about it very quickly. We fell in love with the story and the characters and we decided to write it anyway, even though the odds were next to impossible that anyone would buy this thing because it was just too crazy and too expensive and too different. Uh, But yeah, one one of the things we did when we, we showed it to our agents and they got really excited. And one of the things we did very early on, we only wrote 130 page sample. We didn't write the entire book because okay. we, again, we thought it was gonna just be too nuts. So writing a 600 page book with no chance of getting published is probably not a best, best use of your time. But what we did with that 130 pages uh, was mock it up the way we saw it looking. I used to be a graphic designer. That's right. what I did. Yep. Um, I was an art director when I worked in advertising, which means you're the person responsible for the visual elements of the ad. So I know you know Photoshop and InDesign, I know how to do typography. So one of the things we did was mock up those 130 pages. So an editor who was reading the manuscript wouldn't have to read, you know, a paragraph of a description yep. of what page looked like before they actually got to read the page. It was just simpler to shortcut that and show rather than tell uh, one of those golden rules that I said don't <laughs> exist. Uh, but yeah, so we, we mocked that up and had 130 page PDF and, and we, use that for our submission document. Uh, and it was one of those things, you know, it was either going to be just too crazy for anyone to buy it or just crazy enough that people would, you know, mistake it for genius. Um, and we, we were lucky enough that we, we found an editor that mistook it for genius. Uh, we, we had, in you know, I think we are on sub for about a week and we had four offers from you know, four of the big five in the wow. States. So, People got really excited really quickly. And um, were
1: well, you just kind of gobsmacked by that?
0: Oh yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> very surreal, 3 a.m. phone conversations because of the time difference in the States. You know, you have to ring and talk to your editors or your potential editors, you know, when they're awake, which means getting up really early for us. Yeah. And yeah, Amy and I were, we're having some very odd conversations with, with editors at three o'clock in the morning and not quite wrapping our heads around the idea that this was real. Um, because, yeah, the, the, the excitement was pretty intense and the advances being offered were, were – it was kind of life-changing, quit-your-day-job yeah. money. So yeah. it was um, – yeah, it was, a, it was a pretty amazing week for both of us.
1: How did you manage the co-authoring process? Because, you know, two authors involved in anything is always going to be, you know, interesting. Did you do all the plotting together and then divide the writing up or how did you actually –
0: do that yeah we plot together um and this is the process that we do even today we we get together physically um like at a pub usually yeah good and i will drink and amy watches me drink and about drink number five is where the magic starts to happen (laughs) we'll we'll plot we generally plot about 100 pages in advance because through experience we find if if we do more than that the story will evolve in the telling of the story. We'll think of cooler ideas as we go. So, any more than 100 pages plotting tends to be wasted time. We'll, we'll start to trip over our own feet. And then we divide up those 100 pages into scenes, into POVs, and we divide the writing duties based on those POVs. So, Amy writes the female protagonist, I write the male protagonist, and then we'll divide up the secondary characters between ourselves. And who and writes Aidan? Uh, I write Aiden. Yeah, Aiden.
1: Aiden's a fascinating element in that in the narrative. I, I've, yeah, really. If there was a point of genius, it was probably Aiden. I would say so. Well done on that.
0: Oh, thanks. Mm. Yeah, it's a lot of fun to write. It's, it's very different to anything that I've written before. But um, strangely enough, there's a lot of me in Aiden. A lot of my kind of nihilistic worldview. So Mm. yeah, it's fun to write. But also the the way it frees you up visually to to do things that a normal book just can't do um that that was one of the things we decided to try and do to to break the idea of what a book can do to to kind of change that paradigm Um, i mean there's been a few writers that have done it before mark danielewski did house of Leaves, which is you know experimental in its format and there's uh night film by marissa Pessel, uh which is also kind of playing with the idea of online communications but, yeah, we, we were trying to to break the idea of what a book could be.
1: And did the almost sort of, like it was very almost instant success of that first book, did that take you by surprise? Like as far as the, um, like it seemed to publish and then it was just everywhere and everyone was talking about it and it was on bestseller lists and it was all happening in about five minutes flat.
0: Um, I mean, the lead-up to it was, you know, two and a half years long. It's, mm. it's weird about overnight success. <laughs> It's not, it's not really overnight. Um, I mean, we, we hoped it would do well simply because Random House had poured so much of themselves into it. Like this wasn't a regular book to produce. It took a huge team of designers and, you know, internal crew production guys, sales and marketing. You know, they, they, they'd never done a book like this before. And so they had to invent new systems in order to deal with it. Uh, Even if it's like, you know, the formatting of the documents for the printers, I think Random House have eight standard templates uh, when they're sending their book off for pre-prod. And in Illuminae, there was something like 40 and they had to invent those themselves. So it it took a lot of people thinking out of the box to, to make this happen. So we were really conscious of the effort that they had put into it. And so we were hoping that it was going to do well. Um, you know, the amount of time and effort and money they'd spent on it. Jesus, it would it would have been a very sad story if it didn't do well for us anyway. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we, we hoped that the book was different enough that it would get attention. I mean, the movie deal news couldn't have been timed better um, that, that came out about a week after publication um, and you can look in random house have a great author portal that tracks your sales week by week and you can see this massive spike in sales as soon as the news about the movie deal broke Wow! so you know we were we were pretty fortunate in the timing of that but yeah i mean overnight success not so much it was a lot of hard work by a lot of amazing people mm-hmm. and we were just very lucky to end up with a team that were so devoted and passionate about it Um, you know you you can tell when you're working with people who are just painting by numbers and when you're working with people who truly are excited about what they do and yeah the crew at Random House and our other publishers as well Rock the Boat in the UK and Alan and Unwin in Australia they were all firing on all cylinders so we were lucky to be working with a really great group of people
1: and now book two Gemini, is on the horizon being published in all of the places in October 2016 um so uh, you know what can we expect are we are we back into the work down the wormhole again am I should I just prepare to set aside two more days
0: uh hopefully yeah (laughs) a lot of early readers have said they like it better than Illuminate, which is great to hear
1: that's fantastic
0: sequel I mean Illuminate is a pretty big and strange book, so following in its footsteps was always gonna be hard. But yeah. about three quarters of the way through writing Gemini we realized that it it actually was its own thing. It wasn't a book that was going to live in Illuminae's shadow. It was going to be a book that could stand side by side with it. Oh. So it's it's a it's a continuation of the meta plot. It's a sequel as well as a companion novel, so it kicks off about five minutes after Illuminae ends, but initially oh. the action is centered in a different part of that solar system so all through Illuminae the Hypatia and the Alexander which are two ships they're trying to make it to a wormhole to jump out of the system um and the wormhole is it's controlled by a jump gate uh, a jump at space station basically yeah and the entire novel they're sending distress calls to this space station and they never get an answer and book two we find out why what's ah. been happening at the space station um why those distress calls never got through, why help never arrived. And eventually the two plot lines of the book intersect. I mean, anyone who survived Illuminae, and not everyone does survive Illuminae, I won't go into spoilers, but anyone who survived the first book is in the second, in the sense that eventually that the Hypatia will arrive at the space station. The space station is called Heindel. Eventually the Hypatia arrives at Heindel and those two plots intersect. But initially the book is concerned with two new protagonists. So our female protagonist is Hannah Donnelly. She's the daughter of the station commander. And Nick Malakov is the male protagonist. He's a member of, they're kind of an interstellar mafia. They're like a crime syndicate that operate out of the station. Oh, cool! And yeah, Baytech, who are the big bad evil company, they want to stop the Hypatia escaping the system. And so they send a, a team of specialists, uh, to, to they're like a paramilitary unit to stop the ship getting through. So we, we sell the book in as Die Hard meets <laughs> Alien.
1: <laughs> Excellent, yeah. I love it. I will be looking forward so to it's it. A little
0: more, it's a little more high octane, this one. The, the, the plot is probably simpler and it's in it's more high stakes, high action, kind of action movie styling. Okay. Uh, so yeah, people, people seem to really dig it so far, which is great to hear.
1: All right, so let's switch uh, channels slightly and let's talk about your new series, The Nevernight Chronicles, which is very firmly in the fantasy uh, genre again, I believe. Is that correct? Correct, yeah. Okay, and is it YA or is it um, adult?
0: No, it's adult. Um, I mean, I would describe it as crossover. So the protagonist is a teenager. She's 16 years old. and you know, no one has really given me a good definition of what YA is. I, I feel like putting a bounty on this thing. You know, offering a thousand, someone who can actually explain to me properly what young adult literature is. Because for the life of me, I write it, and I have no idea what it is. Like it's, it's like I can't remember his name. Uh, there was a there was a judge Potter Stevens, I think his name was. He was a Supreme Court judge in the United States uh, in this case about pornography, and he said. I i paraphrasing here, but he said, I, I can't define pornography, but I know it when I see it. Yeah, Young adult literature is kind of the same for me. Like I can't have, I can't give you a definition of what it is. Okay. Um, but yeah, it, it's, Nevernight is published by an adult imprint of Macmillan. So it will sit in the adult section of the science fiction fantasy area of your bookstore, okay. but the protagonist is a teenager. So there's definite crossover appeal. And I knew that there would be a lot of readers that would come across from Illuminae and read <laughs> Nevernight just because, you know, it's a 16 year old girl, but it is heavier. It, it's, it's quite violent and there's some explicit sexual content in there. It, it's, it's, it's a grown-up book. It's not for 13-year-olds, I wouldn't say. Okay. I mean, that's it. I was reading Stephen King when I was 10, so I might have told anyone what they're going to read.
1: <laughs> so if you were going to sum up the different, like given that you're currently working on on three different series and uh, so you've got how many, one, one sci-fi, one fantasy? What's the third one? Uh,
0: the third one okay. is it's also sci-fi. That That's not out yet. So oh, that's coming. Yeah, that first book and that doesn't come out until 2018. Okay. I mean, I've, I've written the first book and I'll be working on the second book at the start of next year, but that's wow. called Life and and that, that's getting published by Random House again in the States. And, yeah, that kicks off in uh, autumn of 2018 here in so Australia.
1: So if you were going to sum up the differences between fantasy and sci-fi, is it just that it's cloaks versus space or is it, you know, are there other telling key elements?
0: I mean, at the heart of it, any story is about character, um, whether it be cloaks or space or vampires or whatever. You know, the, the thing that your reader is going to fall in love with is the characters that you create. So in that sense, uh, they're very similar. You know, you, you want to you create a compelling character with an intriguing story and, and go from there. I mean, in, in terms of the devices you use, you're probably a little freer with fantasy mm-hmm. than you are with science fiction one of the things we're really careful of when we write our sci-fi stuff um, whether it be Illuminae or with Life Like is that the, the science and the physics actually has some grounding in reality you know mm-hmm. it's we don't write Star Wars there's mm-hmm. no space there's no lightsabers you know there's you know there's gravity there's momentum there's mass there's there's particle physics Um, and we have you know an astrophysicist and a bunch of other specialists who kind of come in and advise on the books to make sure we get all that right so in that sense we, we have to be a lot more careful in constructing the worlds than you do with fantasy you know fantasy you can just say it's magic and they have a they have a spell that does this thing or they have a sword that does this thing or there's this monster that we just you know pull out of thin air to do the job that it needs to do whereas science fiction at least the way we approach science fiction we're a lot more rigid uh, in terms of obeying you know the laws of physics the laws of conservation of energy that kind of thing okay so yeah um there's that consideration to make but also i mean i think readers in general are far more grounded in fantasy tropes than they are in sci-fi tropes sci-fi is a bit of a black dog you know a lot of the thing a lot, one of the first things that readers say to us when they come up to us at signings or whatever is exactly what you said. Like, I don't normally read science fiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Illuminae is kind of the first sci fi book that people read. Interestingly enough, when I, I always ask them, you know, have you read The Hunger Games or have you read Divergent? Um, those are two big YA properties. Yeah. And they'll inevitably say yes. And those are science fiction properties. You know, oh. science fiction doesn't necessarily mean space and right. laser beams. You know, um divergent is set in a dystopian future hunger games is set in a dystopian future They're yeah. they're sci-fi animals. um but yet yeah, people are generally more familiar with fantasy tropes than science fiction ones you know everyone knows what a what a knight is everyone knows what a dragon is everyone knows how armor works you know yeah, so yeah. you can you can be a little uh easier going in terms of your world building and explaining your concepts, whereas science fiction, if you're bringing something new to the table, which hopefully you are, uh, you normally have to be at great pains to explain how it works. So the world building in science fiction tends to be a little more granular, a little more more decent. That's one thing that we been doing.
1: Do you find when you're – because you are writing across three different series, are you just focusing on one book at a time so that you're not – so you can keep your world straight or – how do you manage that aspect of things? Because if you're switching yeah. between projects, it would be difficult.
0: It would be. I, I set aside blocks of time to write. Uh, it may be that editing on one project overlaps the writing on another. So, for example, I'm at the moment I'm writing Nevernight 2 and I'm going to be working on that until the end of the year. And once, hopefully, I finish this, this book at the end of the year, start of next year we're going to be working on amy and i's new series which uh sold in earlier this year and also i'll be writing Life Like too so i i partition blocks of time to be working on the one project because yeah, yeah flipping back and forth between two headspace wise would be difficult i mean i, I can do it editing yeah. um because you know editing is a very different process to creating and normally even if you're undertaking major changes in the document you're doing so with direction from your editor they're they're kind of giving you a hand and giving you direction in terms of how it could be achieved so it's not as it's not taxing the same part of your brain you're Mm -hmm. not you're not creating something out of nothing mm. uh, but I, I found that can actually be quite helpful you know when I'm editing one piece and writing another you know if I get stuck in the writing I can switch to editing mode um, yeah. I'm a great believer in the brain's ability to solve problems even while you're not consciously yeah thinking of them you know I, I had a maths teacher in Year 10, I was terrible at maths. And exams used to stress me out, no end. And he told me, you know, if you ever reach a question that you don't know the answer to, don't just sit there and stare at it and move on to the next question. And your brain will think about the problem even though you're not consciously doing so. I find writing is the same way. So yeah. if I'm stuck at an impasse on, on the drafting stage, I can switch into editing mode and hopefully the brain is percolating in the background. That works for me.
1: Ah, uh, Me too. <laughs> All right. um, So let's finish up uh, with our last question that we ask every author, and I forgot to warn you about this. So sorry. Um, Sorry. But our sorry, bad Alison. Um, Your top three tips for aspiring authors.
0: Um, I mean, there there are a lot of a lot of authors give the same answer to these questions, and that's because the answers are are very true. you know, the the first thing I would encourage people to do is read outside their genre that they're mm. writing. Um, read as widely as possible. You need to understand the rules of your genre um, and know when to break them. But if you if all you're reading is the kind of book that you're writing, then you're going to sound like everybody else. Mm. Um, you're going to you're going to fall into the same tropes. You're going to fall into the same patterns. If you want to distinguish yourself, then read as widely as you can. If you, if you're a writing fantasy, you should be reading you know, biographies, you should be reading thrillers, you should be reading horror novels. You know, if, if you're writing young adult fiction, you should be reading adult fiction. Um, otherwise, you just, start, you, you sound like everybody else. Yeah. Um, so that would be number one. N- number two is finish. Um, finishing is really hard. There's a million first chapters out there in the world. There's a million people that sit down and say, I'm going to write a book and start like the, the start point is easy writing the end at the end of the manuscript is really, really hard. And often you'll find, you know, real life gets in the way or a new idea that's shinier and more exciting gets in the way. Um, but, but learning how to finish what you start is actually one of the real disciplines of the job. That's, that's why I like the concept of NaNoWriMo so much, which is, you know, coming up in November, even though, you know, The idea of sitting down and writing 50,000 words of jank uh you know it, it seems counterproductive but the one great thing that NaNoWriMo teaches you is how to finish what you start like it doesn't matter if what you're writing is garbage you can go back and finish that fix that in edits like the important thing is to reach the end and have like a complete document you can go back and polish that as hard as you want but you can't polish something that doesn't exist um so yeah, that would be number two, finish what you start. Number three is kind of cheesy, um, but it, it it's believe in yourself, believe in your own ability and believe that this is something you're supposed to be doing. Like I said at the start of the interview, the, the probability of getting published, um, let alone succeeding, like paying your bills, paying your mortgage with money that you make by creating art, any kind of art is really long and all along the way, all along the journey, you're going to meet people that tell you that you're crazy for doing this, that you're wasting your time, that the odds are so remote as to be impossible, and they'll give you all the reasons why you can't and why you shouldn't and why it's silly for you to even try. Um, Those people are poison. They're, they're, They're the enemy of creativity, and they exist only to make you doubt yourself they are obstacles in your way um, you need to push them aside and believe in yourself because it is a hard journey and it is it is really remote that the odds of succeeding but you know if you're spending two three hours a day creating a story building characters building worlds um even if it comes to nothing, even, even if at the end of it, all you have is you know ninety thousand words in a word file on your computer, that 's still probably a better use of your time than sitting on your butt in front of the television or in front of Farm Bill on Facebook. you know, at least you have at least you have created a world at least you 've told a story um, that 's an amazing way to spend your time so don 't let anyone who tells you that you can't and you won 't and you shouldn't even try get in your way because what you 're doing is an amazing thing.
1: Fantastic. Well, on that note, I will say thank you very much for your time today, Mr. Christoph. It has been um, very, very excellent speaking to you and best of luck with all of the things that you have coming up.
0: (laughs) Thanks very much. Thanks so much for having me.
2: Oh wow! Absolutely fascinating. What a great well, chat we did. Honestly, we did have a great chat, and it was
1: quite a lengthy one. So I hope everyone stuck with us until the end. Um, but yes, yeah, so I'm very much looking forward to Gemini coming out uh, yes. in October, and I'm very uh, yeah. I just it was a it was a good chat, and he's so busy. Like I can't get my head around how he's writing three series at once. Um, and the fact, you know, I thought his tip there where I asked him about how he did that. And his tip was that he, he does one at a time, Like, there's none of this. I'm going to do a bit of this one today because I can't mm. think of anything to write about the other one. You know, it's very much, I'm going to focus on one project. I'm going to get that project finished and then I'm going to move on to the next one. So, um, obviously, and, and he has obviously a very intense routine. Like he's writing, trying to write three to 4,000 words a day. Mm. Um, you know, he's now writing full time, thanks to mm. Illuminate, but it's, you know, it's he has got himself a serious routine going there.
2: Good on him. Mm. All right. Let's move on to our working writer's tip this week. What have we got?
1: Ah, uh, this is an interesting one. It came to us via our Facebook page. So thank you very much for sending us a message. We do love a message. Yes. Um, and it is from, oh, gosh, I've totally lost track of who it was from. Okay. Oops, sorry. Well. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'll have to look that up later. Oh, sorry. Um,
2: but I think but it was thank you da- to whoever you are.
1: Yeah. Ah, oh, mask. Oh, sorry. Gosh, you know, what? It's so much for my routine. All right. I'll just read it out and we'll go from there. Okay. Hi, Australian Writer Centre. Love your podcast, courses, site, resources, everything. Hooray! You're helping me develop my writing skills in so many ways. I was wondering what you think of Chinillo.com from a reader and writer perspective. They pay writers based on reader subscriptions. I was recently asked to contribute via a writing series but I'm wary. Is it worth it? Would it start off my career in the wrong direction? Looking forward to hearing your insight. So, have you heard of Chinillo.com, Valerie?
2: I have not, but I have since obviously gone to the site since you've mentioned this. And while I have not heard of Chinillo, I have come across very similar, uh, you know, sites and very similar offerings to this.
1: Yes. And what are your thoughts on those sites and offerings, Valerie?
2: Well, look, I think that people uh, who are writing – um, I always – it depends on what your goal is, of course. If your goal is ultimately to be published by a traditional publisher, I actually recommend that you go down that route because mm-hmm. it has a certain level of rigour um, and it has a certain level of um, standard that is really good for you to experience in order to, for anything else, just becoming a better writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if that's not your goal, <laughs> then, then that's okay. If your goal is just to write and you don't really – mind what level, what standard you get to and you, because you just do it for pure joy and you just want it out there in the world and you actually don't care how much you get paid or whatever, do what you like. Hey, you know, Okay,
1: so I have discovered who it was that asked us this question and it was Darian Chavez. And hello, Darian, and I'm very, very sorry for failing to write your name down the first time. Um, The fact is that Darian says, um, would it start off my career in the wrong direction? And that suggests to me that Darian is looking at a writing career. So I did some research on chanillo.com because um, I just think anytime someone approaches you and says, you know, will you contribute to my site or will you contribute Mm. to my whatever? The best thing that you can do is do some research and you have to get beyond their own site to do this. So what I did was I had a look at all of the various forums and places like that, where I often go for this kind of information, because this is where you will find writers talking about their experience with particular sites. You need to like, look, put in things like, um, I put in things like Chinillo, scam, Chinillo, beware, Chinillo, etc. And what comes up is the kind of, you start to get a feel for the stories that people, the, the experiences that people are having. And what I discovered was that it's a web-based serial publisher. It's a subscription-based publisher, meaning that those who want to read have to pay. Now the memberships aren't particularly expensive. They started about $4.99 a month and they top out at $20 a month or something like that. They can be cancelled at any time. However, what I also discovered was that readers, uh, sorry, writers do not get paid unless they actually manage to amass a $50 total on their... I'm not exactly sure how the, um, the subscription process works, but until you actually reach a $50 threshold, you don't get paid, which means you are putting a lot of content on this website for possibly not very much return at all. And what I notice also is a lot of these authors are saying in these forums is that they're not getting to $50.
2: Yep. Right. They're
1: never getting to $50. They've been there months and months and months and months, and they're not getting to $50. Mm. Plus, they, the Chinillo also charges the authors $5 a month as a condition of acceptance. So oh, to me, just... it looks like the build the, the model is we're going to take money from authors. We're going to take money from a little bit of money from readers. We're going to mm. take as much content as we can from authors to build our site. Mm. And then, you know, we leave it at that. So I think you'd have to be terribly, terribly successful to actually make any money on it. And in the meantime, you have put your work on the internet. And therefore, your work is gone.
2: Yeah, so I mean, of course, you can all make your own decisions, but one Absolutely. of the things. Absolutely. I just is think
1: approach with caution. You should yeah. always have a close look at exactly what other people are saying about these things.
2: Yes. So, and even just Google, has anyone worked with Chinillo? Yes, that's And a that's whole right. raft of um, posts will come up that you can read and make your own decision. Own on. decision
1: based on that. Yeah. Mm. So, I hope that helps, Darian. Um, I guess, you know, we, um, well, I'm really cynical uh, about <laughs> these things. So, I tend to approach all of these things with a, a great deal of caution. And I think that most you know if you want to build a writing career then you'd probably be advised to approach with caution yourself and then make your decision based on what you find
2: but also if you've had any experience yourselves with chanillo good or bad let us know we'd love to hear about them you know if you've had a bad experience let us know if you've had a great experience let us know as well absolutely all right so what's happening in the coming week al before we wrap up oh just lots of you know, faffing and fighting
1: over shoes with the children, I guess, but at <laughs> least I'm not making frozen sandwiches, Val.
2: Yes, that's right, because you'll be on school holidays. <laughs> yes, that's right. do you still have to make lunch on school holidays?
1: Well, yeah, but it's kind of a different, it's a different setup. It's not like lunch boxes at 7.30, you know, it's sort of like, what are we going to have for lunch today at 12.10? It's a yeah, big, right. It's a big difference, yeah. Mm.
2: The feel is different. Mm. mm. Well, I'll anyway. be knee deep in building, revamping the new website, the new look website for the Australian Writers' Centre. So, by the time this uh, podcast episode is released, in theory, we will have a brand new looking website. So, obviously, just check it out at writerscentre.com.au. Would love to know what you think. We would. Yes. All right, so that brings us to the end of the episode. Where do we find you online? Uh, you'll find me at com. You will
1: find me on Twitter at, at Al tate A-L-T-A-I-T. You'll find me on Instagram and Facebook at Alison tate Writer. And you, Val, where do we find you?
2: (laughs) At Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram. And I just search for Valerie Koo in Sydney on Facebook and you should be able to get me there. And, uh, yeah, connect with us. We'd love to hear from you. So Mm -hmm. until we uh, chat again next week, have a fantastic week. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentercomau slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentercomau slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.